thank you very much, everyone, uh, both the panelists and, and the attendees in the audience. Um, so this is the first of our um, series of Bookit Talks. And Bookit is a lab management software. So we work on a daily basis. And myself, I'm, I'm the head of Bookit Academia. So I work with a lot of scientists on a daily basis. And uh, we wanted to produce these talks to uh, engage more uh, with scientists, but also to produce some useful and insightful contents. Um, and that's why we have Caroline, Kieran, and Manuel today here with us um, to talk about the impacts and the changes that COVID-19 had uh, and is having um, on science. So I'll start by introducing the, the three panelists, just so you know a bit more about um, them. So starting with Caroline, Caroline is a professor at the Ohio State University, and she teaches and researches the relationship between science and technology uh, with policy and society. And she was a policy analyst for more than 30 years, and she served both the White House in the US and the European Commission. So as you can see by the papers that she has just shared with us, she's very interested in collaborative efforts to um, conduct R&D innovation. Uh, so thanks, Caroline. Um, for being here. And then I'll move on to Kieran. So Kieran um, is uh, or was a professor at the Manchester Business School. So he teaches science and technology policy. And he's also a member of the Manchester Institute of Innovation Research. So he uh, works quite extensively on policy with policymakers in the UK, in the European Union, but also um, in other parts of the world. And you can see all his work published um, on science, technology, and innovation policy. So he has a lot of papers, as well as um, the political science blog uh, from The Guardian's newspaper, where he was a contributor and, and co-editor. And last but not least, uh, Manuel. Uh, thank you very much for being here as well. So Manuel is, is very experienced with uh, grant writing and getting funding to R&D projects. So he has helped a lot of um, companies, but also academic uh, projects getting funding for uh, research and, and developments, mainly from the Horizon 2020. So he's basically here today to provide us with more understanding into how um, the funding in scientific research works and how COVID might have changed the way science gets funded. So uh, we'll go into more details later on. Um, but that's that's it for for the panelists today. So we have quite of a, a broad um, experience here that we'll try to leverage to get the conversation as uh, interesting as possible. So before um, one of our main conversation topics, and that's that's where I would like to start, is on the landscape before COVID. So I know that COVID is part of everyone's lives today, but I would just like to go back. Um, it's not a long time, uh, just a year or uh, maybe a bit more than a year and just try to analyze how everything was before. And maybe we can start with um, Caroline and um, as Caroline is based in the US, but she knows the, the rest of the world quite well as she worked for the European Commission. And maybe we can, we can just talk about the main differences between the, um, in Europe and in US in terms of um, funding for um, scientific research. So what, what would you say were the main differences before um, the pandemic? Yeah, thanks again for asking me to be on the panel and, and including me. This is a group, a wonderful group to chat with. So uh, thanks for the opportunity. 
um, yeah, before the pandemic, I think we see that um, there's a great deal of cross-Atlantic collaborations and um, similarities uh, in, in style and structure between um, North America and Europe, uh, where you see a lot of basic research is funded by the government. Um, and a lot of applied research is done in other um, places like industry uh, or research institutes. The structure is fairly similar between the two, uh, North America and Europe. Um, they've pretty much copied each other over the centuries in developing a similar, uh, similar kind of science system. And the, um, one of the features of that system, of course, is open publication or open communication of results. So um, there's a, a great deal of commitment to publishing the results of work. So almost everyone uh, publishes some or communicates some part of their work through publication. Now the publication we know can also be in the form of patenting um, that companies of course do a great deal of research and increasingly um, larger shares of research is done by the private sector. And they sometimes publish, although not as much as the academic and uh, institute sectors, but they also um, will reveal the work that they're doing uh, through patenting. And then of course, uh, improved products, processes and services that are coming out of industry. So that kind of structure is very similar uh, across the two. And then very recently we've had the rise of China, which is extremely interesting development in science studies as we see China emerging using a rather different structure than uh, we have uh, experienced in the West um, and in terms of the governmental structure is quite different. Um, the internal structure of the way in which they conduct research and so on is different. Um, they are joining in, in uh, at the global level with others. And so we see a very interesting set of developments there in the, in the global uh, array of possible uh, research and development activities. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, thank you very much. And maybe we can we can touch on something that you mentioned, which is um, basically the the kind of a, like the recognition or how people and scientists advance their careers um, more on the academic side than in the industry side, of course. But is is by publishing by publishing papers. And uh, maybe this is a question more for Manuel and. What, what did people have to do to, to get funded um, before COVID? Um, did they have to think a lot about the impacts of their research in the clinic, or it was just about more about who had the most uh, impactful papers or the highest number of uh, papers published? Well, thank you, Francisco, for the question, for the invitation. Uh, as, as my experience is in my focus of experience, which is basically the Horizon 2020 and now the, the Horizon Europe, which is the next framework program that will be uh, running until 2027. Um, let's say that the, 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 the basic um, ideas were, were the same and the, the basic criteria were, were actually the same. When you move towards more basic science or research, it's all about this, the, what they call in the commission, the excellent science. So the the reputation of the of the proposers the, the main researchers and all that and as you move towards a more applied research which many of it it's still actually funded by the commission the european commission then you you start moving for more towards the potential impact in the in society in society 
Um, what we did see after the pandemic, and I, I will talk about this further on, but is clearly, let's say, a, a positive discrimination. So new topics were opened uh, beyond what was already planned to, to focus on the pandemic. Do you have any examples of those of those new topics that did Yeah, we, we had, um, let's say, uh, around March, there was uh, actually um, the, the European Commission through Horizon 2020 allocated a, a, a very interesting parcel of, of uh, uh, closer to market research. There was an instrument called the, the European Innovation Council uh, pilot, uh, accelerator pilot, and a specific call was open in uh, in March, just for bringing to market um, prototypes. So only prototype technologies could apply that were either uh, for diagnosis of COVID or for improving the treatment of COVID. And this was very specific. There was a dedicated budget and a ded dedicated uh, evaluator panel. So let's say it was uh, uh, a targeting of the funding specific for this. This was replicated at national level and not only Portugal, but other countries had, uh, let's say, smaller scale uh, examples of this uh, um, research focused towards uh, COVID. Right. So, so these, these kind of financial instruments always, do they always demand that the scientists uh, behind the projects and the innovators think about the impacts that their research is going to have, whether it's is short-term or, or long-term impacts? In terms of, of my personal area and looking already, let's say, to Horizon Europe, which is what's coming now and just opened two weeks ago, so it's really fresh, I think you have always some allocated money for, for more fundamental research, more focused on the science per se. And that would be, let's say, the ERC grants and the Marie Curies and all those classic instruments. But more and more, and this was actually claimed by, by the European Innovation Council, which, who is the umbrella organization that, that they cares, takes care of what they call the, the more disruptive research. There, there's an instrument that was used to be called the Future and Emerging Technologies. This was the FET. And the FET converted now to something called the Pathfinder. And this is focused on only uh, very, very early scale research. In, if I think we might all be familiar with the TRL scale, the technology readiness level. And they clearly say that it's for research under one, two, and three levels, one, two, and three. So it's the basic concept and idea, not yet demonstrated at, at laboratory level or experimental level. And even for these very early stage funding uh, in an open call, uh, application so any anyone can apply with all kinds of areas there is a demand they call it a gatekeeper so a, a condition that if you do not fulfill it you cannot be funded which is the technological target so you might be researching uh, a, let's say a, a fundamental science question but you need to at least have a, a vision of how can this transform itself into a technology or a, or a service so yeah, there is a, a clearly more and more a, a fundamental concern with transforming science into business, which is something they clearly state. And when I say they, it's the European Innovation Council and the Commission that uh, the United States has done very successfully. And there's a there's a uh, an idea to replicate 
uh, how can fundamental science science can go to to the um, to market right yeah and yeah talking about the, the funding and um you mentioned already that the european commission uh, announced uh, horizon um, europe which has a massive increase from from horizon 2020 in terms of uh the budgets that they have available now, which is increasing by more than 35 billion. And, and maybe this is a question for, for Kieran now, that's, um, and this is after COVID, of course. So how much do you think that the, the public opinion um, affects the, the funding that is available for um, scientific research? So basically my question is that because of the pandemic and because, um, most people thought how important it was to have um, technology for uh, vaccine production or for diagnostics of COVID. Do you think like the more that people become aware of how important uh, the work that scientists do uh, is, the more funding will automatically be assigned to, to science? Do you think the government follows the, the public's opinion? Okay, can we see a correlation here? I think... Um funding public funding for scientific research is one of the least politicized areas of public spending it has broad public support from all quarters of the political spectrum there's a reason why the uh, european union r&d budgets always go up which is that it's it, it's always um, proposed to have a massive increase because it's so uncontroversial. And of course, that massive increase usually gets scaled down a bit in the in the negotiations with between the Commission and the member states, because the member states don't want to spend any more than they have to. But but it's a, you know, spending on science is politically uncontroversial. So it, it tends to get agreed uh, early on in, in, in the planning process. I think in terms of public attitudes, how how, how will they change? Well, it's very difficult to really understand public attitudes towards science because science isn't a single thing. So there, there, there are plenty of public attitude surveys asking members of the public in many different countries their general attitudes towards science and those can, and, and towards scientists and those consistently show a very high level of, of um, a positive attitude towards science and a high level of trust in, in scientists, although that varies by where the scientists work. So, um, you know, uh, company scientists are not seen quite as, as trustworthy as, as, um, uh, as scientists working in the public research base, um, for instance. Um, so there's very little evidence for any kind of general across the board at, at kind of anti-science attitudes. But what we do see is that people, people don't think about science in monolithic terms. People approach issues um, issue by issue, we all do this uh, with the prism of our own experience, views, um, identities, ideologies, and that applies to how we think about evidence and expert pronouncements as much as anything else. And unfortunately, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that tendency actually increases the more highly educated you are rather than decreases. So, I mean, those are kind of inbuilt human um, you know, human and social frailties, shall we say, that's just that's just the way it is kind of thing. But I think broadly, people support spending on research. Um, and also, I mean, people see spending on research as an investment in the future. And in a situation where you're thinking about rebuilding and, and building back better, all that kind of rhetoric, you know, it has a kind of obvious um, kind of post-crisis appeal. Yeah, 
so there, there's always more available after after a crisis has happened than uh, before, or at least that's there's they are more willing to to do it now. I think that's right, although it, that that doesn't always last very long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so these, I mean, this funding will uh, at least for the next seven years, right? Um, it it will last uh, for for Europe and and the member states. So, do you? I don't know. This is an open question for for the three of you. Do you think? Where, where will these funds uh, land? Do you think it will be very focused on uh, vaccine technology or trying to tackle the next biggest threat? Or will they be focused more on other threats or on other diseases that uh, were kind of neglected during this pandemic? So their research also gets a boost like, like COVID did over the past year. Yeah, Caroline, go ahead. So one of the things we saw is that um, almost all the advanced uh, nations governments put um, a surge of money into COVID right away, uh, as soon as the pandemic was became clear and there, a lot of money went into, um, into the R&D coffers and went out as Manuel was mentioning. Um, you know, certain very specific and targeted requests were made of the R&D system. And we tracked that and we could see, a, you know, an immediate rise in the number of papers related to um, COVID. I mean, it was just a phenomenal, spectacular increase in papers of all kinds, including some by me um, who was out there, uh, you know, talking about, hey, look at this, uh, COVID really increased um, the activities that were going on. So, uh, you know, and there's a phenomenon, I think, in science funding is that, you know, when money's put out on the table, um, people will come to the money. And, you know, if, if they're working on something adjacent, then, you know, all of a sudden they're, you know, that, that's what they're doing. Um, you may also be aware that in the new administration is talking about in the United States is talking about putting really tremendous amounts new money on the table for R&D. And my expectation is that we won't be spending a lot of that money on health because um, after the end of the Cold War in the United States, there was a really big shift of funding to health and went into healthcare and health research, medical research. Uh, and so I think there's a sense that, well, we've kind of done that and now it's time to go back to some uh, more fundamental and important uh, uh, topics that um, are coming up in competition. So the US system tends to work uh, as like a competitive based structure. And so when we get challenged, we react rather than think ahead. That's just the way we do it. And um, so, you know, when Sputnik uh, happened in 1957, uh, well, all of a sudden you saw all kinds of new R&D money. And similarly, the Cold War led to a great deal of surge of spending. And then um, the end of the Cold War, another surge, but more on the medical side of let's be healthier. And now I think we'll see another surge in funding, but I don't think it will be in, in medical. Um, I think it will be much more towards, um, you know, computing and new materials, um, some, some uh, bio, biological sciences, but not necessarily on the medical side. So I, I think the, these kinds of changes, we tend to forget the disease action activities pretty quickly after they happen. <laughs> Um, you know, maybe we don't want to uh, focus on the past and, uh, you know, sickness, but uh, my expectation is that we'll see, at least in the United States and maybe in Canada, we'll see more of a reactive 
set of funding going in um, because um, due to the rise of China to some extent. And um, also, uh, you know, to some extent, the rise of Europe, which we don't see necessarily as a threat, but certainly we see that the European investment over the last 30 years has had a tremendous return uh, in terms of capacity. So how do you think, I mean, I can just, just following up on that, how do you think we could uh, fight that and, and put more importance on, on health even after the pandemic is long gone? Uh, how do you think health could actually uh, compete with tech in, in terms of getting funding? And this is a, an open question again, anyone can just weigh in. I'd like to hear Kieran on that one. Yeah, I think, I mean, as I was, I was listening to what Caroline said with interest, because in the UK over the last few years, there has been a bit of a, a kind of a, a buildup of a backlash against um, the scale of investment in biomedical research, scale of public investment in biomedical research, both in terms of kind of top down, so government prioritization, but also in terms of the priorities of individual research performing um, institutions. So the most research in the, the UK, like in the US, happens in universities. And, and much like in the US, UK universities are essentially private institutions um, or, or very independent institutions um, um, and, and make uh, decisions of, of their own, uh, have a great deal of freedom to do that. Um, a huge uh, uh, amount of investment in, in the UK um, in, in building um, biomedical research facilities in big programs. And, so, and, and a lot of that has been um, straightforward copying of, of what they see happening in the US. And over the last couple of years, perhaps there's been some sense of a bit of a backlash that perhaps that, that investment hasn't delivered in terms of economic or societal impact. Now, I think the backlash will abate because um, obviously there are things that the there are things that the biomedical research lobby, which is very powerful, you know, all science lobbies are powerful, but the, the lobby that lobbies for, for investment in biomedical research is very powerful for obvious reasons, um, because they can enlist um, patient groups and family supporters and that kind of thing. Um, th those lobbies can now point to, you know, the commercialization of mRNA vaccines and things like that, things that have been on, on the table for a long time, but that have moved forward very, very quickly in, in, in the last you know, year or so. Um, and, and, are, and are clearly having, you know, kind of substantial societal impacts. Um, so I think, I think the backlash will abate. That doesn't necessarily mean, so I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Caroline. It doesn't necessarily mean that the priority will shift back to biomedical funding. There is a, I mean, there is a cliche about generals fighting the last war um, and I think there'll, there'll be a bit of that. The UK is, is desperately trying to build a, a national vaccines manufacturing facility at the moment, which to be fair, was already, had already started before the pandemic. But um, so, I, so I would expect to see some prioritization of, um, of vaccine research and, uh, and, and of um, manufacturing capacity because you know, many countries have no, the UK has next to no manufacturing capacity for vaccines. Um, and, uh, you know, supply chain issues have certainly made governments rethink that um, over the last uh, few months. Right. And do you think it's also uh, just because biomedical research and anything related to life sciences usually takes longer to, to see results than any technology uh, development that is not directly related to, to health? And 
And maybe these, I don't know, Manuel can also comment on this. The, do the funding agencies or do the funding bodies usually look at um, what's the return on investment and how long that return will take? And is that why tech usually gets more attention than, than health? Well, I think actually the, the, there's been a long debate since 2014 in what is this, uh, let's say, TRL5. So I would, that's my core of experience, which is... Uh, in, in drug design or pharma is what when we talk when we're closing the preclinicals and so there's already a, you know it's not fundamental it's already there's some some evidence on the table and so i've seen until until last year if you look at what's been funding and in this in this maturity segment we see a lot of support into uh, drugs that have a very clear regulatory pathway. So things that are, for example, addressing orphan diseases or uh, many of them that they face regulatory hurdles in Europe, but they are very much easier to, 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 to be um, certified under FDA uh, uh, norms. And that's actually something that I think the European funding has been, um, let's say, pushing forward is to, sh to show the best examples of the FDA in the United States and, and po pointing at them towards the, the European medicament agency that needs to you know, learn some things from, from, from the USA in that sense. Um, so what, what we were seeing before was this kind of uh, fast track drugs, they were being approved or at least they were being funded under the, the, the rise in uh, 2020. And actually now for the next seven years, uh, again, for this uh, preclinical done phase, what we see is of a total budget of around 1 billion, the commission is, is reserving 25% for health-related uh, solutions. So not only drug, but also um, you know, medical devices and uh, everything in between. So I think there is, there is a, res, a specific orientation of, of funding to make sure that pharma and health in general is being put forward. And that's called the challenges. They called it the challenges of the accelerator. Um, that fund is actually a blended finance instrument. You meaning there is a grant that goes, that is, um, it's, um, there is a grant for research that then is followed up by equity equity that comes from the European Investment Bank that, is, that asks for other fund, funding uh, instruments, private ones especially, to join to co-fund or to co-invest, sorry. So in that sense, there's this attempt to, to uh, bring new life to the VC environment in Europe, focusing more on deep tech and, uh, and not as much on IT, which I think was the, the, the trend with... Uh, web summit and all those nice things yeah right yeah yeah caroline just asked what is the effect <laughs> yeah that's that's a good question that i think commission has been putting forward different definitions but i would say if it does not have a patent it's usually not deep tech so that would exclude all the software kind of stuff unless it's uh you know hardware for computing um and otherwise, it will be things which are which are much more product oriented or service, but based on on uh, hardware and not as much, you know, services like 
I've developed the Uber of or the Airbnb of, which you know has been a, a trend in in some segments um, the last years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just um, maybe switching a little bit the the gears here, and um, we have, I mean, Caroline mentioned how how much COVID had an impact also on on the scientific research that everyone from all of a sudden just uh, focused really on on publishing about uh, COVID. But I think it was also fueled a little bit by um, the willing to to help society just get past COVID as as fast as possible. But how do you think? How much of that do you think? contributed to the lack of quality in, in scientific research and if, if it contributed to also some misinformation and confusion in, in the public opinion, but also in the government actions that uh, were taken based on, on those evidence in the early days. And I'm talking about the papers that were showing uh, people sneezing and how far the, the sneeze droplets would go or how long COVID could actually survive on, on specific surfaces. Um, so all of that, how do, how do you think it impacted um, how people look at um, scientific papers? Do they give them as much credibility as they were giving them before? Or um, it's, it's an open question again. Maybe I can make a start. I'd, I'd be very interested to hear what Caroline thinks about the quality issue, the quality of the kind of avalanche of COVID research. I mean, I think what I'd say is that quality isn't unidimensional and it's not uh, objective. Um, you know, so uh, as we know from the vagaries of the peer review system, you know, um, experts disagree about the, the quality of, of research. Um, with a new problem, uh, you have to start somewhere. Um, and timeliness is also important if research is going to have impact. So, you know, there are clearly, you know, um, subjectivities, um, multidimensionalities around quality, but also quality is traded off with other things that might be desirable. Um, but in terms of your question about the, the, the public um, perception of what they've seen of the way science has been conducted over the last you know, year and a, a, a bit, um, I think you know, the public has seen how the sausage is made, you know, to, 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 to use the cliche. You know, um, what we've seen is not any different to the way science works in any other, in any, any other case except the pace and the pressure, perhaps. Um, uh, but the things that we've seen, you know, um, the, the false starts, the blind alleys, the confusions, the disagreements, the, 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 the difficulty of, of um, integrating uh, perspectives and expertise from different disciplines, all of those things is part and parcel of doing science. You know, it, it's, um, it's not easy to make reliable knowledge. Um, and the public has, had the opportunities to see both the, the production of new um, scientific knowledge and the production of usable technology happen in real time in front of their very eyes. Um, and I think that's probably a good thing. I don't think we should be afraid of it. I think there is a tendency uh, on the part of the scientific community still, it's changed a lot, but I think there's still a tendency to perhaps want to mystify the process uh, the processes of doing science and, um, and, and perhaps to also to um, take advantage of, you know, um, you know, kind of persistent myths of, 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 of scientists as kind of 
morally superior, you know, um, uh, um, you know, superhuman, uh, objective, rational individuals um, who 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 are kind of you know. Um, they're, they're hewing facts out of the bedrock of the universe kind of thing, whereas actually it's a social messy process as it has to be if, you, if you're going to, because science is not just about generating knowledge claims, it's about validating knowledge claims, and that's essentially a social process. So I think it's a good thing that, that people get to see how science is really made. I think it will probably lead to, to more trust and faith in science rather than less. I think the thing that creates concerns um, and confusion um, amongst uh, different publics that are not uh, participants in the scientific en enterprise is, is probably the mismatch between the mythology and, and the reality. So if we can dispense with the mythology and, and, and go for that much richer and glorious but messy reality, then I think it's, it's probably a good, a good thing in terms of public um, attitudes towards science. Right. And I think also some, somewhere in the middle between uh, the scientists and the public uh, lies the media, right? And I think it's probably the media that should actually get, get along with the scientists first. So they just don't pick whatever paper comes out and just publish saying that scientists claim this and that, and then the public doesn't know what to believe in. And, and at the end, they start doubting the scientists uh, because they don't understand the process and they don't understand that science also needs to be validated further and that a scientific paper is not uh, the absolute truth um, so that they should also understand it. Um, and we have Caroline, I think she wants to weigh in as well. Go ahead. So I couldn't agree more with, with Kieran's statement. And in fact, it, it brings to mind for me two trends that I saw over this COVID period uh, that uh, one is a very um, positive one and one is more troubling. But I, I agree 1000% with Kieran. Um, you know, science is not about truth. <laughs> it's not about finding the truth, um, right? And it, in fact, it's quite uncertain and all the time testing, uh, testing, testing, whether we understand things correctly or not. Um, and that process that was played out in front of people, I think was um, probably a positive. Um, move because people began to realize, okay, we, I, I understand now that we have to continually question and test. And in that sense, one of the positive trends I see that came out of COVID was much more citizen science. So there were apps developed. Um, I participated in an app after I got my first vaccine where uh, there was an app that asked, how are you feeling today? You know, do you have any side effects? And that all went back into a big database. And I felt so good because I was like contributing, you know, um, and I think a lot of people um, had that sense. Uh, and I think there is more interest in citizen science and bringing more people into the process so that it's not so, you know, mythological as, as Kieran rightly pointed out. It's not, um, you know, wizards on the, in a castle. It, it is really a process, a social and scientific process that we can have people involved in. So, I think that the whole move towards citizen science and towards localizing science is a really positive thing. And I hope it continues out of the COVID experience. But the second thing that I've seen um, a little bit that's concerning, and I think this goes across a number of different scientific systems, and that is um, kind of asking science for specific goods. 
um, in which you know we now we got the COVID vaccine, which was an amazing, incredible breakthrough um, of all scientists working together, and they had been working on it for years ahead. So this is not something that we just pulled out of a hat this last year. People are working on coronavirus uh, for many years, and the mRNA uh, science has been uh, researched for a long time. So. Um, out of a hat and we need to have the commitment to a lot of basic research in order to have any goods emerge and so um you know interestingly and i'd like to see what manuel thinks about this because it sounds like in the current uh, eu horizon there's a lot of like here's what we're hoping to get out of the system <laughs> you know here are the technologies that we want um when in fact uh it doesn't the system doesn't work like that we can't ask it it's not like the santa claus of technology so um we can't necessarily ask for things a lot of times these things emerge from our investments in a whole range of different possible outcomes. Um, and so I do, I'm concerned on the US side and in what I hear from Europe and, and Asia too, of a sense of like, well, we're gonna just order up these kinds of developments uh, and then we'll perhaps judge the system as to whether or not they're giving us these goods that we want. Uh, I think we have to be clear to the public in general uh, and to, to ourselves that that we cannot lay out uh, a, a set of very specific goods that we want to get and then judge the system as to whether or not they've given us those goods. Absolutely. Uh, Manuel, you want to? Yeah, I, I would add on that. I, I, I agree with Caroline. I think what, what we have seen even in the previous um, programs of Horizon 2020 is that uh, I, although there are clear objectives or expectations on certain topics uh, there is always this this uh, idea that we say but we will leave a lot of topics uh, also as open questions so let's say it's if it is something it, it's a positive discrimination so i think there is not a single issue where they say we are only going to finance health and green tech but they will say, okay, let's reserve half the budget for these things, which I think are Santa Claus lists for sure, but let's hope for the best. And especially for, for as, as, um, as we go towards more fundamental research, the number of lists increases. So let's say they are less prescriptive or less restrictive than when we go more closer to market, because there is a clear, clear approach when we're talking about prototype level, so TRL 5.6, that the two major aims of the commission is pharma or health, health in general, and uh, the circular economy and the Green Deal. So environmental related uh, technologies, let's say. But if we look closer to the more to, to the Pathfinder, so TRL one to three, so fundamental principles, there are much more interesting questions, open questions from the the scientific point of view. One is the search for what they call, let's say, true in, uh, artificial intelligence. Another is uh, tools to measure and stimulate activity in brain tissue, so completely different. Um, gene and cell therapies, uh, novel routes to producing green hydrogen and engineered living materials. These are, let's say, the major focus of fundamental science research. Um, but there is always this other part, which is it's an open question. Anyone can uh, 
uh, run for it. And if you have a sufficiently high or uh, ex excellent uh, CV on research, then there is also a, a bit of the cake for you, let's say. I think it's worth it's worth um, keeping in mind as well that, that it's a multi-level system in, in the EU and um, the member states um, and the the, the, the participating uh, countries as well are funding research at, at the national level and and I suppose there's always been a tacit um, understanding that the, the the member states would be funding you know the kind of more fundamental research and the EU programs have historically been you know relatively applied although that the, the way that that the kind of shape that's taken has, has varied over the decades um and it's only really with the advent of the erc and 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 things like marie curie that has become a bit more focused on 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 on, on, on what we might call basic research and then the other thing to keep in mind is and then this is, is another pre-pandemic thing that, that that might still have re uh, resonance uh, post-pandemic is that the EU uh, R&D thing has been very heavily influenced um, uh, by the notion of, of challenge orientation and mission orientation as popularized by by people like Mariana Mazzucato um, uh, trying to learn lessons again from often from the US uh, US experience but not but not only and so a lot of the language and I think one of the things about about science policy is that the language changes um from time to time with fashion but the underlying the underlying content doesn't always change that much it doesn't change as, as, as quickly partly because as manuel says it's often it, it's often still very responsive you know so it's still uh, dependent on, on on ideas from the scientific community those ideas are, are effectively being selected by members of the scientific community acting as uh, as as reviewer panels so i mean it, you know that the, the, the language and the, and the rhetoric of the kind of high level priorities does does change over time um and you get new instruments and new mechanisms but you, there's a lot of continuity as well i think right uh, i would just add on top of kieran because i think you, you mentioned a very specific point which is the the nomenclature that that now arise in europe is using is clearly transcribed from from other experiences in the united states and actually, the concept of mission is is the first time it's it's employed, and it's now on Horizon 2020. So, at European level, of course, and and it's clear that there there, there is a focus on these challenge-oriented funding. Let's say, right? Yeah, I think the the take-home message is that uh, there should be a lot of funding for for basic research for sure, uh, because we we never know when when we're going to need it, and and we needed it. Uh, for COVID, for mRNA technologies and, and vaccine production, and and we'll mining it in the future for other threats as well. Um, it's generally a false opposition. So to, to, to a large extent, we, we, we create a false opposition when we talk about basic versus applied as if it's a zero yep. sum game. But in practice, um, you know, those are subjective. <laughs> there's, no, there's, there's nothing different about, there's nothing fundamental about fundamental science. You know, you can make fundamental discoveries from trying to solve very practical problems and, and, and vice versa. So, um, you know, as I say, regardless of the label, often the same science gets done. Um, uh, so um, I, I'm, I'm less worried about that. I think the basic science, I think, I think the point where I agree with Caroline is that because we can't predict and we can't dictate um, 
technological trajectories in, in advance in detail, it doesn't matter that much how precise our priorities are. And we can offer a lot of freedom and the freedom is important as part of the social incentive to, um, uh, to attract um, uh, scientists and engineers to do research. So, um, and the, the other important thing is that that, that, that kind of, the more, for, you know, for want of a better word, the more basic research end of the system, which is the, usually in the public research base, is where new scientists and new, and new engineers, new researchers come from. It's, 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 the, it's, it's the, the place that the human capital, if you, if, if you like, uh, for research is, is produced. Most researchers work in industry in, in developed countries. The vast majority of researchers work in industry. Um, but they're all produced in the public research base as they're all trained in the public research base. So it's essential for that. And, 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 and the priorities, the, the agendas matter less than the kind of quality of that, of, of that training, I think. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Kieran. Um, yeah. And switching gears again, completely. Uh, we have been almost for uh, 50 minutes already. But I have to ask this question, and it's about patents, and um, should the patents be open or not, and how much of the of the problems that we're currently seeing on on solving this pandemic are political uh, versus scientific or or technical? I would just like to to hear your opinions on it. Anyone want to go first? <laughs> I'll I'll jump in. Um... Actually, now you're going to you know, push a button and I start talking about how the trouble with patents. So patenting um, you know, started out with the idea of encouraging risk takers to um, share what they have invented. That was the original idea of a patent, is to encourage them to write it down and let other people see it because that would spur other innovation. Uh, and you know, it was actually, I think it's the U.S. Constitution is the first uh, constitution to ever even mention patenting as a right. So it's written right into our constitution that patenting is a, a good thing and that you know, we wanna encourage people to claim some rights over their, their knowledge. Over time, the system, uh, patenting system has gotten quite distorted and we know that there are patent thickets and there are patent blocks and uh, there's a lot of funds that get exchanged without wealth being created attached to patent uh, cases being brought against one company or another, uh, which really uh, bogs down the innovation system, in my personal opinion. <laughs> I think it was, would be upheld by the research out there. Um, so then the question comes up, you know, who owns the patent for the vaccine and whether or not it's right that a single company should hold that vaccine uh, patent. Now here we get back to, I think, to Manuel's original point, right? And that is that, um, you know, these funds have been put in uh, and with the idea of um, helping a large number of people. And it's hard to, to track that funding just to one specific system. We can't say that the funding came from the United States. When you look at the actual activities that have been going on in mRNA and coronavirus research, um, they have been highly international and highly cross-border uh, collaborations. And so the idea that any one nation uh, or one company would hold onto that patent seems um, to question the propriety of the patent system as it's related to ensuring public good. 
So I would say that in my personal opinion, I would like to see uh, mandatory licensing for those um, patents so that any company that's able to make them, and I believe this is uh, actually allowed under the TRIPS agreement and WTO, that if you're going to use it in your own nation, that you should be able to produce it for your own internal use. I don't think that's against TRIPS. Um, and I think that that would be a, a much better outcome for this. I think this is a technology that belongs to the human race and not to any company. Um, although that's my little soapbox uh, lecture for the day, I'll pass. I agree completely with, with Caroline. I think most, most nations have provisions in their um, intellectual property laws for, for, for you know, intellectual property rights to be suspended in certain circumstances. I think uh, Caroline's right. As, as I understand it, I'm not an IP expert, but as I understand it, that's, that doesn't contravene any um, international agreements. Um, nobody wants to be the first to do that, of course, um, because there's a lot of informal sanctions that could be applied um, by, um, you know, retaliations that could be applied by countries or companies. Um, uh, Caroline's absolutely right. You know, one of the one of the interesting things about science policy is that science is a you know it's a globalized enterprise, although it's a globalized enterprise in which you know some countries are more present than others, of course. Um, but it's a globalized enterprise, and but science policy um, is a. a a nationalized kind of policy area and a kind of nationalized rhetoric as well, nationalist re rhetoric often. So, um, uh, so, so I think there is a there is a mismatch there. You know, it's it's meaningless for countries to claim that that that, that vaccines are theirs in any way. Um, it's also meaningless for these companies. You know, in, in most cases, these you know the, the vaccine the early vaccines are mainly being produced by companies that don't normally produce vaccines. You know, that that, that have essentially just done a deal with a, a, a small biotech or a public research organization that's developed the technology. Um, uh, so, you know, the, the kind of those traditional considerations around patenting, the, the incentive tradition and considerations that, that Caroline mentioned, do they really apply in that kind of um, innovation model? Um, and and the, 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 the global public emergency and the fact that none of us, are, you know, none of us are safe from, from COVID until everybody is, um, safe from COVID. Um, you know, it's a no-brainer that 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 um, that the technologies should be available everywhere. And and how that's done is a matter. You know, that's up to the companies and, and the governments. But if necessary, suspending or, uh, or enforcing pooled patents or license compulsory licensing. You know, yeah, of course, it's a no. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't live isolated in such an international. And uh, globe where everyone just travels everywhere and everyone needs uh, everyone else in, in other countries. So I totally agree. I don't know if, uh, Manuel, if you have anything to add on that. Not in this particular point. I think uh, okay. Caroline's and Kuhn's opinion. So. Yeah, I think that was, that was a good answer. So uh, thank you both. Um, yeah, so we're near the end. I think we have a question uh, from E. Owen. Um, maybe Manuel and the others can also weigh in. And he's asking, um, do you think Brexit will have negative effects on UK researchers getting access to uh, Horizon Europe funding, even despite officially staying uh, part of it? 
Well, I, I can start because I've had hands-on experience just the last two weeks. I, I won, I'm coordinating two consortiums of uh, that one Horizon 2020 projects and have the UK participants, namely the University of Birmingham. Uh, and uh, I think for those institutions that are already used to to this kind of instruments uh, i think after the the uk government confirmed that this was that the, the let's say a similar status to associated member was being kept then this did not affect uh, participation because the consortiums are established researchers know each other and you know good collaboration continues uh, as is for new uh, organizations trying to join the game let's call it i think at the beginning it might be the, the brexit feeling might be a bit disconcerting to to find that it could be an obstacle but, uh, but i don't know kieran what what's your experience on this um yeah i agree with with, with manuel i think i mean there, there was some we don't have a great deal of hard evidence on this but the the there's some evidence that that uk um, groups less likely to be coordinators in 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 Horizon 2020 projects and in, in the period surrounding um, Brexit. So um, uh, I, I think Manuel is right. You know, with um, existing partnerships, existing networks, um, partners in the member states will be relieved that they can still involve the, the UK. Um, Collaborators. Um, on the other hand, when new um, when when new partnerships are being formed, we know that you know lots of myths traditionally persist, perhaps in the less informed um, parts of um, uh, the, the, the 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 European research system about you know uh, you know the 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 rules of the game and you know you have to have a Southern European collaborator, you have to have a Eastern European collaborator, all of those kinds of myths. Um, uh, and, um, uh, you know, maybe, you know, I, I, I certainly, you know, it, it appears that those kinds of um, myths were prevalent over the last few years that, you know, that you will be um, locked unfavorably on if you have a UK coordinator. So, so, so I, I think there is some space for some disruption caused by kind of, you know, um, miscommunication and misunderstandings. Um, uh, but but I, I imagine, as Manuel says, it will... It, it will settle down because it's in everybody's interests for the yeah. for the collaboration to continue. I, I would dare to say that on the years leading up to Brexit, this was actually a let's say a leverage point for the European Union to try and pressure some some organisations that if Brexit would come to happen and how Brexit would come to happen, uh, that this would be a, a, a big problem for, for, let's say, a sector of, of the UK research organizations. So in that sense, uh, myths like the ones Kieran was mentioning, like having a, a UK coordinator would be prejudicial, um, were, were in fact widely circulated. But I think now that the issue is done as it is, that it's no longer a question. Caroline? Um, people forget that the UK has always been ambivalent about the, the European experience. So, I mean, in the earliest days um, when uh, the initial uh, projects were getting going bright and Eureka and so on, um, UK stayed out of the original activities and only came in uh, later. And then in the time when I was working with, with the European uh, Commission, 
uh, doing some uh, evaluation with them. Um, almost everyone I met was from the UK. So, um, but one of the things that I think um, I would totally agree with Kieran and, and Manuel, and that is, you know, scientific collaboration tends to um, organize, self-organize around uh, reputation of, of the people involved. And so even when we looked at COVID research, for example, uh, what happened in the aftermath of the shock of the pandemic is that um, almost right away, uh, US, UK and Chinese collaborators began working together very rapidly uh, and without any direction from any specific government. Um, you know, these kinds of, uh, of connections organized within the science system independent of, of you know, kind of top-down direction. So I would say that we would expect that while there will be some influence um, on the uh, relationship, uh, the UK has tremendous deep strength in many areas of science and that will be an attractive feature for collaborative um, work, no matter whether their particular um, participation in any individual project in the, in the Horizon program. Right, yeah, I think the, the scientific community and both Europeans and, and UK researchers will have a lot to benefit from maintaining those relationships and partnerships and collaborations uh, going for, for many years. Um, so I don't know if anyone else has more questions, but we've been, uh, I feel like we could uh, stay here talking for uh, hours and hours. So just to, to finalize it, I would just like to um, ask you a question to the three of you and please just be brief um, about it. I just want to uh, hear about your, your personal take on it. And what is, you, what is in your opinion, the, the next biggest threat that we'll face as uh, humanity? Anyone can go first. I'm not sure I'm qualified to um, uh, to to to, uh, to to speculate. I mean, I, I think um, so. The, 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 this is a very interesting thing. The pandemic, you know, a global pandemic caused by a virus jumping the species barrier was at the top of every country's risk register. You know, it's been uh, you know uh, uh, identified as a as a as a kind of wildcard risk by every foresight exercise over the last thirty years. Um, you can't say we didn't know it was coming. Um, and it's one thing to know something is coming. It's another thing to make deep um, preparation for it. Uh, I think there will be, um, you know, evidently in research policy over the next few years, there will be a very self-conscious focus towards future-oriented risk thinking, you know, whatever that is, you know, that artificial intelligence taking over the world or, or whatever. So for the next few years, expect a lot of that discourse and it might it might displace the, the challenge and mission orientation discourse to some extent. Um, whether it will have any real impact in terms of our preparedness for whatever the next um, uh, risk is, 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 is a slightly different question. Right, Caroline. Uh, this is a great question, Karen, as whether risk uh, overtakes or kicks out mission orientation. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> that would be worth an article right there. Um, and I agree that we are considering risk. One of the things COVID showed us, uh, I completely agree with, with Karen, like the system has tried to anticipate this pandemic for a long time, but 
um, it's one of those high consequence, uh, low probability events that um, it's hard to, you know, I don't know about you, but it's hard to pay insurance on my house burning to the ground, right? Because the likelihood is really, really low, but I still pay the insurance, you know, but each year I, I want to pay just a little bit, you know, I don't want to pay for the whole thing, but if my house burns down, I surely want the money. Um, so I think that we have, um, we always have to balance uh, those kinds of considerations at the, the national level, you know, in terms of science policy. Um, one of the things that I think we know is um, we know that the great risk is right there and that is in climate. We know that climate change is tremendously risky for all of us and the risk um, devolves right down to the individual level. It's not as if we would say it's just a national risk or global risk. We have issues right in our own backyards around, you know, we're insects and um, you know, what's the soil capabilities um, to grow food. And so, you know, these, this is where I see a hope for citizen science um, and to involve a lot more people in the process of helping science move forward. I think that what we've seen with COVID is when we all put our minds to something, we can be utterly brilliant. Um, and that combined efforts are, are really a wonderful thing that we all came together to help each other around this pandemic has been I think will be a shining silver lining out of the experience. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we can take that kind of cooperative um, sense of success forward in addition to risk, of course, as Karen said, but that we learn from the cooperative uh, nature of our response and could take that forward to the ne next risks, which are really right on the doorstep at this point. Absolutely. Uh, I, I will follow up on, on what Caroline is mentioning, which is climate change for sure is is a is a the greatest threat to to mankind, uh, and adding to that would be uh, the way we we relate to into to into artificial intelligence. Uh, we are and the, the big data and the way data is processed that can cause suddenly uh, very powerful transformations in society that are not necessarily beneficial or, 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 or evil. They can just be, you know, um, completely transforming. It's like when you, you started having uh, combustion engines and all horses went to, first they were unemployed and then they were eaten and died, right? But uh, so in that sense, uh, there are a lot of fundamental things in our society that can, they, they can just be made uh, redundance and how we deal with this redundancy is it, it for people to have the right to work less and to be more creative of, or take care of their elderly there are innumerable solutions that are as political as they are social so um, I think that will be the thing is it will be uh, fast changing which is the the new item here on the table is that we are not having time to think about change because change happens at a rate that, let's say, we are not as much ready to, to handle. Maybe I can be mischievous as well and add, add, add to this the threat to the scientific community from automation. Um, so we keep, we keep hearing that AI is going to make scientists redundant. And I think there's, there's lots of reasons to be skeptical of that, but perhaps that's a, a risk that, they, um, that, 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 that we ought to be discussing as well. Yeah, I think that would that would give us uh, a topic for another talk for sure. <laughs> uh, 
uh, but yeah, thank you very much uh, for the three of you uh, for your incredible um, insight in, into the conversation and thank to everyone that sticked around until the end. Uh, 